Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. My imagination longs to dash ahead and plan developments, but I have noticed that when things happen in one's imaginations, they never happen in one's life. So I'm curbing myself. Dory Smith, I Captured the Castle, 1948. And you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Alma Barna, PhD student in the School of Philosophy at the Australian National University. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, what is your definition of imagination? Mm, it's very hard to give a definition of imagination. Yeah, imagination can mean lots of different things. For example, the ability to think creatively or to create uncommon ideas or it's our ability to engage in fiction, our ability to visualize, to form an image, to pretend, to do role play or uh, to rotate objects in our minds or what philosophers like to do, to think about what is possible. And I'm interested in a very specific kind of imagination that I call sensory imagination. And there are different types of sensory imagination. So there's visual imagination, for example, when I visualize an apple, or there's auditory imagination, when I um, imagine hearing the sound of a trumpet, for example. How we define sensory imagination is relative to how things are represented in these cases. Things are represented in a specific way. And this way is similar to sense perception, but it's not the same. So when I visualize an apple, this is similar to seeing an apple, but it's not the same as seeing an apple. That is basically the kind of imagination that I'm interested in. What what inspired you to, to study this particular type of imagination? A while ago, I was interested in the question whether consciousness can be reduced to something physical. And um, there's a prominent philosopher, an Australian philosopher, David Chalmers, who argues against this view. And he has an argument where in this argument he states that, very roughly in speaking now, since we can imagine a creature that is physically identical to us but has no consciousness, then... Materialism is false, so consciousness cannot be reduced to something physical. And that's a very common methodological tool in philosophy that we use imagined scenarios to argue against claims of necessity, for example. So if the imagined scenario is possible, then the necessity claim is refuted. And I was thinking about this argument, and I thought imagination, this modal imagination, what we need here, it's very peculiar what this is, what it could be, and and also whether it exists at all. Then I wanted to read more on imagination, and then I realized that 
many of the fundamental questions about what imagination is, and they're just unanswered. And also questions about what its roles are in reasoning and affecting our behavior. And yeah, that's basically what got me into this topic. Do you think that imagination could be a source of true justified belief and knowledge? Yeah, that's a very good uh, and important question, I think. So let's say that I imagine that I'm flying in my cape over the Blue Mountains, something like that. Now, it would be bad to infer from this or kind of form the belief based on this that I am, in fact, flying in my cape over the Blue Mountains or that I can fly in my cape over the Blue Mountains. So the, there's a, the relationship between knowledge and imagination is slightly different and it's more indirect. And I think we can, for example, use imagination and mental simulations and this then yields justified true beliefs. So I might, for example, ask something like, what would happen if I placed a ball on the top edge of a ramp? Let's imagine this, what would happen. Or how many elephants would fit into my living room? Can I just simulate putting all these elephants in my living room? Or what would it taste like if I put sesame on the pumpkin? <laughs> Things like that. What is the shortest route to the restaurant? These are all cases of like mental simulation. In these cases, there are also constraints put in place on imagination. So it's not that I simulate freely, because otherwise, for example, in the case of the ball, I would, I would simulate the ball not rolling down on the ramp, but maybe instead rising up in the air or something like that. Um, so these simulations follow rules. And, and to understand how imagination can yield knowledge, it is important to understand uh, these rules and these constraints. And yeah... Now, philosophers are often very interested in the relationship between imagination and what is possible. And there are philosophers that think that imaginings can tell us whether something is in principle possible. So imagination might yield justified true beliefs about what is possible. And for the contents of these imaginings, then there are less strong constraints in place than in the case of imagining the ball. So one constraint could be, for example, consistency. That could be a constraint. What would the difference be between imagination and belief? Let's say that I believe that it is raining. And now I imagine that it is raining. First, we might say that believing something and imagining are both ways of representing it. And then these are two different ways of representing it. And now we want to know what are the differences exactly. And it's actually not as easy as on things to provide general criteria. So philosophers often struggle with answering these questions. What is the, is there a, a general difference between imagination and belief? And it's very unclear whether they necessarily differ. But I think there are characteristics that we can point towards which help distinguish beliefs from imagining. One characteristic is that beliefs aim at truth and imaginings do not aim at truth. So some imaginings they are not representations of reality, but there's nothing wrong with them. When I'm just imagining that I'm flying in my cape over the Blue Mountains, there's nothing wrong about me doing this. So this somehow suggests that imaginings do not aim at representing the truth. Um, and if I, if I form the belief, though, that I'm, I'm flying in my cape over um, the Blue Mountains, then there's, there's something wrong because this is false. 
is just a false belief. And then another characteristic is that imaginings tend to be under voluntary control, but not belief. So if I want to, I can imagine that uh, there's uh, an elephant sitting on a swing, for example. But merely because I want to, I cannot believe that there's an elephant sitting on a swing. Or at least it's much, much harder for me to do so. And you might also want to say that, which kind of would be absurd characteristics, that imaginings tend to cause different actions than beliefs. So when I believe that there's an elephant sitting in front of me, I, this would cause me cause to act me in a certain way. For example, like I get scared or I, I would take out a camera, maybe take a picture of the elephant. But if I merely imagine that there's an elephant standing in front of me, this would either maybe cause no no action, no immediate action, or distinct in the, in the distinct action. I would not take out a camera and get scared. Maybe it would trigger a desire, a desire in me to go to the zoo when I imagine this elephant. Yeah, so these are uh, these are ways of distinguishing imagining from belief. Does memory have any effect on imagination? Yeah, I think memory has a strong effect on imagination. It has a strong effect on the on what we imagine, definitely. So, maybe just to give one example, I before I mentioned the example of imagining what would happen to a ball if I placed it on the top edge of a ramp. Now, if I had grown up in an environment where balls in such circumstances, for some reason, they do not tend to roll down ramps, but they kind of just rise in the air. Or they, when I place them on the top edge of the ramp, and they just stay there. And now you ask me to imagine what would happen to this ball, and I, I might have a tendency to intuitively imagine the ball rising up or the ball just staying there. So, yeah, and we do not have a tendency to imagine this because we have experienced balls differently. And we remember this. Um, so this is an example where the the memory of the behavior of objects influence the content of the imagining when we when we uh, mentally simulate the behavior of the object. And generally speaking, we tend to and generally speaking, we tend to use the contents of of memories a lot as part in our imagining. Could you tell us about the contents of imagination? Yeah, the contents. So mental states have content, and imaginings are mental states. And content refers to what the state is about. So the content of imagining is, is that what the imagining is about. So for example, when I'm imagining that there's a dog sitting under the table, then my imagining is about a dog that is sitting under the table, and that is the content of the imagining. And there are lots of interesting questions that you can ask about the content, so... One interesting thing about the contents of imaginings is that they're often much less constrained. They can be really crazy and unusual compared to beliefs and desires and, and perceptions. I think there's one particularly interesting subclass, and these are so-called egocentric imaginings. That is, These are imaginings about ourselves. Where, for example, I can imagine looking at myself from the outside. So I can imagine that I'm surfing in the ocean and 
then I imagine at the same time observing this from the perspective of somebody sitting on the beach, for example, from the perspective of my surf teacher. Teacher, I can imagine this, and and it's unclear whether this is a possible this is a possible situation because I'm somehow split between my perspective being here and me being over there in the water. So it's in generally an interesting question whether we can imagine inconsistent or impossible things. For example, can I imagine a square circle? Well, yeah, in some sense I most certainly cannot imagine this because it's just impossible for a thing to both have the property to be square and a circle. That's just ruled out by the mathematical definition of square and circle. But maybe I can visualize a circle and then somehow mentally stretch it so that it looks square and maybe we might want to call this a square circle. And can I now decide that in this case I'm imagining a square circle? So there's also an interesting relationship between the contents and the will. So some contents are under voluntary control. We can sometimes decide what the imagining is about. So I might form an image of a pear and then decide that it represents a dog. It's a dog which might look a bit strange, but I still want to say that I'm imagining a dog. So there's an interesting relationship between the contents of imagining and, and the will and whether we imagine, uh, whether what we imagine is possible. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Alma Barma, who's a PhD student in the School of Philosophy at Australian National University about imagination. What are the epistemic roles of imagination? Yeah, epistemic roles. Epistemic roles, as I understand them, they're cognitive. They're cognitive functions of a particular kind. And they're these cognitive functions that imagination has that are linked to acquiring knowledge and justified belief. So we might want to say that there are several epistemic roles that imagination has. There are roles that link to justification, to truth, to knowledge, to belief formation, also inferential roles, imagining stand in inferential relations to each other. For example, let's say that I imagine that my house is on fire and I also imagine that if my house is on fire, I'm in danger. So from this, we can infer that I'm imagining that I'm in danger. And this is also an epistemic property of the imagining. In any case, imaginings play epistemic roles. And this is something that philosophers use to deny. So do you think that technology has had an effect on training children's imagination? Yeah, I guess being exposed to technology always has some effect on the cognitive apparatus, which effect is, I guess, hard to tell, especially for me as a philosopher. I think that a lot of people have the idea that the development of imagination is somehow restricted in some way by exposure to media, television, radio, movies, and so on. I think the empirical evidence for this is quite inconclusive. And it doesn't seem to be the case that it has a negative effect on children's imagination. 
imagination seems to be much more linked to certain personality traits and like psychological factors which are not so strongly affected by technology. I think there are some studies that show that in being intrinsically motivated leads to more creative thinking, for example. So there seems to be some focus on strengthening certain personality tra traits in children or to increase creativity or the things like interactive role-play games. So I think the effect that, that personality and psychological features have on imagination and creativity in children is much greater than any effect that technology seems to have. Yeah, that's interesting because I thought that it actually would have had an effect on children because I know myself when I was younger and I'd, I'd read a book and you'd read about the characters in the book, you'd have to use your imagination to imagine how tall they were or what colour hair they had or what, what they looked like. And I just sort of find that it's always, I always find it quite disappointing when they've actually made a movie of a book I've read and I see the characters yeah. and I think, no, you know, that wasn't how I imagined them to look. That's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the empirical research kind of suggests that visual imagination, sort of picturing things that is inhibited by um, television, for example. So if we, if we want to increase um, visual imagination, then it's better to listen to the radio or, or read a book. Yeah. Definitely listen to 3CR. That'll really yeah. get your imagination going. <laughs> <laughs> now, is there any harm in having an overactive imagination, such as when people's imagination becomes their reality? Yeah, I think that definitely is, can be. I guess we need to distinguish between cases where the imagination is very active but the individual can still distinguish reality from imagination. So the individual knows that she's merely imagining, but if somehow it's too much, it's too intense, or it's not under her voluntary control, and this can be harmful because it can be irritating or distracting and annoying. And, yeah, and then there are other cases where the individual cannot distinguish between merely imagining something and or whether she's perceiving it, for example, so whether it's real or imagined. And I think there are several psychological or clinical conditions where this occurs systematically. So I think there's evidence in, in that in schizophrenia that is quite common. For example, schizophrenics are more prone to false memories. So when you ask them to imagine doing something, later on, they think they remember doing this and they think that they actually did it. So there's a kind of imagination inflation that I think it can also occur, occur in um, healthy subjects too where false memories are generated. And there are also other kinds of imagination inflation. Uh, for example, uh, imagination inflation linked to fears. Um, when I think about myself and I think about flying, I got a bit of fright if I don't like flying. And then when I'm in an airplane and I hear the noise changes of the engine, I just hear the noise. And then I kind of imagine that every noise ch 
change, it's just a breakdown of the engine or something like that. And that stresses me then. So if you, yeah. heard, if you were sitting in the plane and you heard like a, a cracking noise you'd, and you had your eyes closed, for example, you'd actually imagine that the wing was sort of breaking off or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Yes, the whole plane is falling apart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I suppose you wouldn't really imagine yourself wearing a cape flying over the Blue Mountains. If no, you were sort of... unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> not in a good way, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I suppose that it's people's sort of perspective on on different things would affect their imagination as well? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the emotions can affect the content of the imagining. So in this case, because I'm afraid, I imagine something negative, namely the plane just falling apart. But if I was happy and in a good mood, maybe I would imagine just getting my cape and flying so it's the perspective, yeah, definitely. I suppose people's people's fears can come into imagination, but also also good feelings, such as yeah, you know. I think when you're young, we all sort of imagine ourselves as you know as, as being fairly significant students and imagining walking up on the, on the stage at the assembly and receiving awards yeah. and and. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing, which, which I suppose is quite harmless, isn't it? It's harmless to have yeah. an imagination about yourself, sort of almost like an inflated ego. Yeah. So, but this this actually has positive effects. So this can increase just self-image, your confidence when you imagine yourself winning an award. So it's not only that it's not harmful, but it's actually good. So it could be a source of encouragement for people. To imagine good it, things about themselves? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. It mm. can make them more confident. It can also make them better at um, doing the task. So that's also common that it helps to imagine a task that you intend to perform. It helps you to perform it well if you imagine it beforehand. Oh, that's yeah. well, it's very, a very interesting subject. Okay, well, thanks very much for being on the program today. Yeah, it was good to talk to you, Beth. <laughs> and I've been speaking to Alma Barmer, PhD student in the School of Philosophy at Australian National University. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR at 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Karen Green from the University of Melbourne. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've been given plenty of food for thought 